This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome into the Salt City Hoops Saturday or Salt City Hoop Show. Sorry, on ESPN 700. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Are we are we going? Sound. We're live. All right, let's go. There wasn't sound in our headphones for a second. Good. Well, we we have figured that out. So no, we're fine. <laughs> I've, I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett over here on the other side, associate editor of Salt City Hoops, member of the Basketball Insiders crew. Uh, so. We've got a lot to talk about t- today. There's a ton that's happened in Jazzland from the trade to how well the Jazz have played over the last two games since the trade. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of the different 11 trades that happened in free agency today. Uh, and we've got two pretty awesome guests on today as well. Um, first of all, we'll have Seth Partno uh, from Nylon Calculus, from Washington Post, He's literally everywhere. everywhere. And um, so he'll be on the show talking about the analytics movement in the NBA. Because it is that time of year, it's the 2015 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference happening this week. Which I'll be traveling. Yeah. yeah, I'm traveling to that, so that'll be a good time. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about what we can expect uh, this weekend to, to learn about basketball and the rest of sports analytics there. Uh, and, and then we also have John Hamm, who's a, a contributor to Daily Thunder, the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Oklahoma City Thunder, on to talk about how Ennis Cantor is doing in Oklahoma City, uh, the Thunder's rationale for the trade that happened last Thursday, and, and kind of whether or not they want to make that top 12 pick, um, which which would mean the Jazz get their first-round pick in that trade sooner. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about. As always, this is a social show, so we want your input. Feel free to tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. And then you can also uh, call us if you'd like, 877-353-0700 as you're on your drives home. Sorry that you have to leave work so late. John, I think John's going to be the first time we've ever had somebody on in consecutive weeks. He was only in for like a few seconds last week because we did the rapid fire on the on the trade deadline. But I think he, I think that marks the first guest we've had on consecutive weeks, right? Yeah, and so I mean, the reason for that is we kind of predicted that Oklahoma City might be one of the trade targets, mm-hmm. uh, and then the trade happened, right? Yeah, I think we uh, we looked. I mean, we highlighted eight teams, well, seven teams. So we kind of left our we range did, pretty broad. Yeah. But we, <laughs> hey, we got one of them, right? Yeah, like, we. Out of seven, seven teams out of thirty, we guessed one of the seven. I, I mean, not bad. I'll, I'll take it. It's decent odds. Yeah. All right. So I, I'm curious. Uh, let's get into the trade itself because I think this is a big topic of discussion around Jazzland, and and you had some pretty strong opinions on this because there are some people out there who are saying this is a bad trade for the Jazz. That the Jazz didn't get enough in return for Ennis Cantor, a player of his caliber, and, and that you know, quite frankly, Dennis Lindsay and Co. have made a mistake here. I, I really, I I don't necessarily see the ra- the rationale. I mean, I guess I see the rationale in that, yes, 
at the moment that we stand at right now, Cantor is clearly the best player that was in from the. Obviously, Reggie Jackson was involved in the trade as well, but the Jazz weren't involved in that sector of it whatsoever. Cantor's probably the best right now player involved in that, and may even end up being the best player of the of the trade, even once the draft picks are made and so on and so forth. I almost don't think there's any question. Yeah, that he will be, and, right? and like, I agree with that. I, I and my my opinion on this stands, even if Cantor ends up being by far the best individual player in that trade, because. It's just not that simple. This is a player who two weeks ago begged out of Utah. He he literally, and has given quotes since, saying that he, continuing his mantra, that he didn't think that Utah was the right place for him to be and for him to develop. And, you know, I, I think he was, as we talked about, he was he was tired of things like the playing time and his role and things like that. And when you have a player like that, I think there's a certain, that, that adjusts the calculus to a large degree and... You're, we the, the the impending restricted free agency is also a, a large factor to consider, and I, I think that's the biggest factor, oh, right? Yeah, like, yeah. In the end, here's the problem with defending that deal: Ennis Cantor wasn't coming back next yeah, season. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think that there is any way, unless the Jazz paid him a outrageous amount of money, that quite frankly, the last two games performance has, has shown that would have been a mistake. Yeah. Had they paid Ennis Cantor more than ten million dollars a year, I, I think it would have been a mistake. And and the last two games and how well the Jazz have played have shown that so so given that given that you're not going to bring Ennis back an unhappy Ennis Cantor who doesn't want to stay you have to get something in return absolutely you have to realize that a lot of teams didn't want Ennis Cantor because he is a restricted free agent they know you would have to pay him a lot in in the summer's free agency period so then you kind of have to take whatever's left and and I'm actually kind of impressed that the Jazz were able to get as many assets as they did absolutely I was really impressed because they they got back everything really in my opinion that they wanted they got they don't the jazz sacrificed no cap space with this trade in fact they opened up cap space because they took on perkins immediately waved him he's playing for cleveland right now they got back two picks including a first rounder yeah we might not get it for and in fact will not get it until at least 2017 but that's fine the jazz don't need the jazz are as we'll discuss uh, later on in the show and in future weeks the jazz aren't at a point anymore where they need more first round picks this year yeah that's not a need the the oldest two players on the roster are 27 and they're both rookies elijah yeah. Millsap and joe ingles like those guys are are your leaders at some point. You don't you don't need new nineteen and twenty year old guys because you have them one and two deep at every position. Exactly. And so the picks that they did get will either be you know, if things go wrong on the projected trajectory over the next couple years, you have those picks in hand for a few years down the line. You could start another re I mean, we hope this doesn't happen, of course, but that's a worst case scenario. You could start another rebuild. Or those as the I think there's been rumblings of and the and the I think the Jazz have been fairly open about it, those are assets now. Those are you can move forward with those and you can use those to try and acquire extra pieces, maybe extra right now on court pieces going forward. Yeah, I, I think I would be very surprised if the Jazz actually keep this 2017, 2018, 2019 first round pick, whatever it turns out to be until then. I would be surprised if they end up making that selection because I think they will look to move that for an asset that makes them better and even if it's not next year or the year after that, you know, 2015, 2016, somewhere in there where the Jazz decide that they want to be good again and use that as part of a larger package. Yeah, and they got a second round pick out of it as well, which just adds to their stockpile that they've got, which is huge. And those aren't, you know, those aren't massively valuable assets, but in the cumulative sense, having that many is absolutely a bargaining tool. You can use those to attach little things to trades or little stuff like that. They're useful. Yeah, Dennis Lindsay said an interesting quote during his press conference that, you know, everyone kind of poo-poos these second round picks. 
until they pan out. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you get a Manu Ginobili, you get a Paul Millsap, you get a player of that caliber, and then you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm really glad we acquired that pick. Yeah. Exactly as the Jazz did to draft Paul Millsap, what was it, 2006. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to point out that I think... The second round pick is not the second most valuable asset in this deal. I think it's getting rid of Steve Novak's contract Mm -hmm. uh, because the Jazz acquired a second round pick in order to take that on. From my source, they would have had to give up maybe probably two second round picks in order to give it up, given how infrequently Steve Novak has played this season. Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially around draft and and free agency time when those kind of assets are, are more valuable. So... That they were able to give that up now and then open up this cap space for them to use this summer without having to waive Trevor Booker, by the way. If, you know, if they only end up spending, say, $12 million, they don't have to waive Trevor Booker. They can just use the cap space they acquired in this deal. I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. And that, I think that was an, yet another win. And moving on to yet another win that I thought in the trade was the Jazz have got two actual physical players, neither of whom are, are have stepped on the court yet, but if either of those players were to turn into anything resembling a rotation player at the money that they're going to be at and what the Jazz gave up to get them, it'll be. I think it'll be a reasonable-sized win for the team. I guess. I mean, I don't think that those guys are real assets. Yeah, not I mean, that that's here's, likely. Here's the thing. Grant Jarrett's contract for next year is guaranteed. So already you're paying a guy who's a D-League level player, was in the D-League with Oklahoma City, paying him a guaranteed contract for next year. So I, I'm not sh- so sure that that's a win for the Jazz, It's only honest. a million, though, and, yeah, the, and I see the upside. But again, of- we're, if we're talking about cap space, a million here and a million there, it matters. That's true. It, and I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but I actually do think that the when you're looking at a risk-reward calculus, if he can turn in into even a 10-minute-a-game fourth big, which Again, no guarantees whatsoever. It might even be unlikely. But if it were to happen, then after those two years after that, they have him on non guaranteed contract at about a million a year. Yeah. And I, I think that the it's it's worth the upside look. And again, you know, you can't just get everything you want for giving up nothing. They had, you know, and I, I think I those mean, are parts of it. Sure. I, I guess I would quibble a with that. And a scanter is nothing because I, I think he does have value. And, and we saw that with the rest of the return on the trade. I don't think Grant Jarrett is a necessarily positive piece. I mean, I, I see him like a, a Malcolm Thomas, Eric Murphy esque kind of gamble by the team. And remember, those guys didn't work out. Um I don't know that Grant Jarrett has any more talent than those guys. Yeah. I also think that Tibor Pleiss, who's the second player that you're mentioning in this, also is is not that good of a player. He's not NBA yeah. caliber at this point. And, I would agree. and so as a twenty five year old, yes, he's gigantic, but what else how much more development does he really have? He's backing up Ante Tomic in Barcelona. And having uh, a bad year by most accounts. I talked to a few people that I trust on international basketball that told me that as much, basically. Yeah. Even in a backup role, he's having a rough year. So, like, if you bring him over now, you know, there's no real cost to it because, you know, the Jazz aren't going to make the playoffs anyway this year. But... Uh, Realistically, the guy's not going to turn into a rotation player. Yeah, I do think, though, that Jarrett is worth a bit of a look this year for some little bits of minutes because if you have, like I say, if you have even 10 minutes a game that you can eke out of this guy next year coming off the bench to provide some spacing, I think that's that's enough to, to obviously, to pay him that guaranteed money. But, like, who do you think is more likely to be a NBA player, say, two seasons from now, Jeremy Evans or Grant Jarrett? Ugh, that's, I mean... To me, it's Jeremy Evans easily. 
I get. I haven't seen enough of Grant Jarrett to make that determination specifically. I mean, I know. I mean, thirty eight percent in the D League is not nothing. It's definitely not thirty eight percent in the NBA. It's nowhere right. close. But and we've seen that Jeremy just continues to be unable to to gain meaningful court time, which could be. Yeah, but at least he's producing at the NBA level. It's it's true, and I, I think that's a that's an interesting question. I think based on what we you know think now, I'm right. Well, based on what we know now, you're <laughs> right. But we know so yes. much less about Jarrett than we do about. Jeremy Evans. Yeah, but okay. I mean, you're right that we know less. But again, with the information that we have, I think it's a pretty good bet that Jeremy Evans is a better player. Perhaps. I'm not willing to fully yes! concede the point. I'm not, <sighs> not willing to fully concede. I'm that guy, Andy. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, let me ask you this, and, and we're going to talk about the rest of the, the trades in the NBA later. If, if you gave this trade for the Jets, the Jazz a grade. From the Jazz's perspective, what grade would you give it? I actually did do a piece where I gave a bunch of trade grades over on uh, on Basketball Insiders, uh-huh. and I'm hoping that I don't say the wrong grade that I gave the Jazz. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I gave them either an A- minus or a B plus. Okay. And I, I would stand by that t- till now, especially given what we've seen from the team since then, which is massively small sample size, but is really encouraging. And I mean, Kevin Pelton gave them an A- minus too, so you're not alone in that. And I think you're right that you have to look at how the Jazz have played since then and all of a sudden it's like this team has come together and mm-hmm. you it's probably not just a coincidence yeah yeah i i i really think that the jazz did just about everything you could have expected them to do given what the value is of canter around the league which i think still even now a lot of jazz fans see as higher than what it actually was i i, I like not that he was a negative asset they did you know the thunder did have to yeah. give up real pieces to get him but that he was not what a typical third overall pick is generally going to get you in a trade. Right. Like, you have to forget about that. No GM cares yeah, about that anymore. Exactly. You have to look at what he's done in the NBA so far and where you think he can grow as an NBA player. And ultimately, NBA GMs, except for Sam Presti, decided that they weren't going to pay positive assets for that. Yeah. And I, by the way, I just looked it up. I did give them an A minus, so I wasn't okay. wrong on that. <laughs> Congrats. Sweet. Um, I'm glad I remembered my own writing from like four years ago. <laughs> Well, okay, so, and I know lots of reasonable people disagree, so if you're one of those reasonable people, or even unreasonable people, I haven't had a chance to block anyone on air yet, and I kind of want to do that. Nice. So feel free, call in, tweet in, 877-353-0700, or as always, tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett if you agree or disagree on that. I, I want to talk about, though, how the Jazz are playing since then. They've played Portland, and they've played San Antonio, so your your NBA champion San Antonio Spurs, and uh, again, a very good team in Portland, and have shut them down. Like, both of those teams scored their season low points. The Spurs tied for it, but, you know, Only that's because, because of a terrible call right yeah. at the end of the game. Last night's ref crew was astonishing, uh, like, in, it was in really, its incompetence. Really subpar. Really uh, subpar. I overall. want to meet those gentlemen and give them a piece of my mind. Yeah, Andy has Yar. a major pet peeve for late whistles. I can feel him tensing up when I'm on, <laughs> on media row and we see those happen. And there were literally about 15 late whistles last night. It was insane. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, I didn't want to live anymore. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. but regardless, the Jazz are playing phenomenal defense. Like, literally league best defense. I looked it up. Probably it's the second best Defense by any team in consecutive games this season. Memphis held teams earlier this year to 69 points and 75. So that's that's the only team. And as you know, Memphis has a very, very good defense. Yeah. The Jazz are approaching that level. Are against, again, two of the best offenses in the league. Uh, I mean, what do you make of this? I, I know it's only two games, but 
Wow. Yeah, it's it's been remarkable, and I think that you, you do have to give the qualifier that the sample is small, but at the same time, those who have watched those games can tell you that, that, that those are not flukes. Like, that's not just two consecutive teams that had terrible shooting nights or something like that, and, like, legend. That would have to be I think that was some bad. of it, though. A little bit of it, and but, you, I mean, for example, I, I when I watched the Portland game on Friday night, I was thinking to myself, like, it looks like Portland's missing more shots than maybe they normally would. Then I went and checked after the game, and it turns out the Jazz shot, I think, 12 more uncontested field goals than Portland did for the game or something right. like that, which is, I mean, that that's an incomplete measure. It's not perfect, but at the same time, shows you that the, the Jazz, in terms of getting what you want in the league, which are open shots, the Jazz did a better job of it than Portland. I didn't, unfortunately, look that, at that stat for last night against San Antonio. I did ask Greg Popovich about it after the game. He did say that the I'll Spurs... I'll take his word. Yeah, uh, he's, he's all right, right? He's got a decent opinion, right? The, uh, he said that the, he did think the Spurs took some shot, took rushed it a bit was one thing that he said, but he also was quick to, and this was a constant theme throughout his postgame uh, scrum, was he was very, very, very high on what the Jazz did, that both in this game and how they've developed this season. He had effusive praise for Quinn Snyder, for the way the Jazz played defense, for how they were locked in for 48 consecutive minutes. He uh, he gave credit to the Jazz where it was due, and I think... I think he's right. I think that this is far more than just some two-game blip on the radar. I think it's, I think it's very clear that there is an effect here. Well, and so let's let's talk about that because Rudy Gobert has only gotten an average twenty-seven minutes per game over the last two. He was averaging twenty-one and a half for the season, so it's really only five minutes more a game that he's playing. Right? You can't put it all then on Rudy Gobert. Mm-hmm. You have to look at what other guys on this team are doing and. I mean, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in the next segment, but that it's Rudy Gobert plus all of a sudden Trey Burke is trying harder on the pick and roll. Uh, Dante Axum's pick and roll defense was terrific. So terrific, Quinn Snyder said it twice. I mean, these guys are playing phenomenally, and it's been fun to watch. It really has been. And I, I, now, I will also qualify this with, I think a number of these trends, we had begun to see them before these two games. Yeah, Gordon Hayward pointed that out last night, that it was kind of since the Chicago game, he feels like the the mm. Jazz have really taken a next step defensively. But I feel like this is a, a further step up. You know, they played great defense against Chicago, don't get me wrong. But then in between, there were some iffy games. And, and honestly, I think these last two performances were even better than that Chicago one. I, I, I think these last two games have been, from the eye test standpoint alone, been the two most impressive that we've seen the Jazz play defensively. The the rotations have been unbelievably crisp. The the little shows to when, you know, you run a pick and roll, for example, and they dump it off to the shooter on the weak side, the, and the, the guy off the corner has to has to jump over and show a little bit so it's not a wide-open three, but you can't show too much because if you do, then they get the pass to the corner and it's a wide-open right. corner three. Those those have been perfect. The the rotate, like, and you have to get those right. Your footwork on those has to be excellent or you're going to And the Jazz have been terrible at that. That, right, yeah, like, like for, for the last two seasons, the Jazz have been to use a Greg Popovichism, god awful. Yeah, on the defensive side. Yeah, they've been. I mean, and even earlier this season, they were pretty. Yeah, darn I mean, bad. this team is still ranked twenty sixth in the league defensively. Like, yeah. even taking into account the last two games, the the prior fifty of defensive god awfulness still supersedes what we've seen in the last week, but. What we've seen in the last week is truly special. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I do think, and we'll get more into this into the next segment when we get into the details, I think that there is something to be said for the, and uh, Pisa and I will come out tomorrow saying this as well, that there's something to be said for just not giving 
25 to 30 minutes a game to a massive defensive liability in your front court in Ennis Cantor, which you can debate whether somebody like a, a Trevor Booker is an above average defender or not, or where exactly he would rank as a defender league wide, but you cannot debate that he's a better defender at his position than Ennis Cantor is. Yeah. And just taking those minutes and giving them to guys who are competent defensively by itself is going to raise the the defensive prowess of the team, in, in my opinion, not by a small amount, actually. Yeah. Let's talk about the other side of this trade. So, you know, obviously, Ennis Cantor going, in, going to Oklahoma City and doing really well for himself. So, he's averaged 15 points per game, 12.5 rebounds, 2.5 assists per game, which is crazy given that he was averaging less than half an assist. Or, sorry, I believe about half an I assist. I think it was exactly half an assist, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Perfect. Half an assist per game with the Jazz. So, all of a sudden, he's a passing big man, believe it or not. Right. Um, is, is shooting well, is making his free throws, and, and is, you know, uh, an excellent player. He's, like, making outlet passes. He's diving on the floor and into the crowd for loose balls. These are things he never did in Utah. Uh, and I understand why... If, Jazz fans are a little bit frustrated with that because now you know they see a player that the Jazz coaching staff and the Jazz environment didn't get the best of his ability out of. Yeah, and you know I don't know how that speaks to him as a player because that's you know that's that's not necessarily a good quality if they if they right. if then now again it's a small sample and it could be just that he's got a lot of adrenaline because he's in a new city or something like that. But, but it's not like Scotty Brooks like said ten words to him and he's a. Uh, amazing coach that suddenly made the difference in Ennis Cantor. No, this is yeah. Ennis Cantor trying harder. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, you know, it could be the teammates that are around him as well. You know, Russell Westbrook sure. tends to open things up for the other people that are on the court. He's playing absolutely out of his mind. It's completely ridiculous. And I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to watch the... I watched the, his first game mm-hmm. with Oklahoma City and haven't had a chance to watch since then. They're actually playing now. I think they're at halftime. Yeah. So that's why it's good. We're going to have John Hamm on in, uh, in the second hour to help us out with a little bit of the eye test stuff for Cantor. I did notice in the first game a lot of the same defensive stuff that we noticed while we were here. While, while, of course, he played very well defensively in that, or offensively in that same game. But I did notice some of the whole, like, guys get wide open dunks when he should have been rotating over on the weak side and things like that that you don't necessarily see if you're not watching that closely, but I definitely noticed those things. <laughs> yeah, as, as a experienced canter watcher you've yeah. seen those things before. and I'm, I'm interested to see what john has to say about it too because he's obviously watched all of the games with a probably a closer eye than i have yeah and i'm curious how tonight's game worked out as well you know we we can't watch it during the show but yeah anyway um i do want to point out Ennis canter was the first oklahoma center in nba oklahoma city center sorry in nba history or in their history to put up a 2010 game which is ridiculous like it's because they haven't classified. had like Nick Collison or, I don't know, Kendrick Perkins. or Like, you can imagine Kendrick Perkins maybe being able to get those numbers. Like, Apparently not. And Corey I, Brewer put up 50. Kendrick, you can get 20, right? Right. But nah, it's just because they classify Ibaka as a power forward. If sure. he just went bigs, he's probably done that like 20 times. Right. But, I mean, still, they, they've had a hole on center in the roster for, for years. You know, Cole, Cole Aldrich didn't pan out like they planned. Steven Adams is a good, young, up-and-coming player, but he hasn't reached those heights yet. It's interesting that Ennis Cantor immediately steps in and does that for them. Bit of a quiet one for him so far, by the way. He's played 18 minutes so far, 6 points, 4 rebounds. Russell Westbrook nearly has a triple-double already <laughs> in, in 21 minutes, so there's Russ that. is just taking all the shots. That's yeah. that's Cantor. No, it, it, Russ is an insane player. Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. I, on the other side of the break, we haven't talked about Rudy Gobert enough on the show yet, and I, I think maybe if I just repeated his name over and over again, the show would be immediately would more exciting. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do that in the next 12 minutes. Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert. Yep. Next on the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN yeah. 700.
Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back to the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett on the other side, as always, joining me. So we want to break down this defense a little bit, and I think probably the best way to start is from with a quote from Quinn Snyder. Is that ready to go? Let's play it. Rudy's, Rudy's been very good, and it has an impact. I, I think, you know, we, we, it's more than Rudy. You know, Rudy's, Rudy's, and I'm taking nothing away from Rudy's presence and his impact. It's significant. Um, but Dante Exum, you know, was terrific in pick and roll defense. Terrific. You know, Elijah. You know, Gordon had a stunt tonight that was, you know, sounds like a, you know, wow, a stunt. But it's, it was a, a big play and a timely play because it took away a three-point shot. And so I think, you know, Trey's working harder on You know, everybody's trying to do their part. And, you know, when you get that, uh, you know, it's no one player. I think when someone is protecting you, it gives you even more energy, responsibility, and kind of a sense of duty to do your job. And that's all it is. Everybody's just doing their job. Okay, so I promised we'd talk about Rudy Gobert, but just like Quinn Snyder, I want to break down the other players involved in the Jazz's defensive performance. Again, over the last two games, holding NBA Western Conference playoff teams to their season low in points. So let's do it in his order. Let's start with Dante Exum. He might be the best rookie point guard defender I've ever seen. Marcus Smart might argue with you a little. I am arguing with Marcus Smart. I, I think Dante Exum's length and quickness he showed last night, I don't think Marcus Smart could do that. The 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 length, of course, Marcus can't duplicate. I I do think I might have to disagree. I okay. think Marcus is the is I mean already one of the best perimeter defenders in the league, which is kind of nuts. But that and that's not to take away from Dante. He was incredible last night. That I tweeted. I thought that was the best game he's played defensively all year, and we've already been impressed with him defensively because he wasn't expected to be much on that end. He was expected to right. be bad, in fact, and he's been the exact opposite. And last night was just incredible. He's the thing that I noticed the most that he started to improve is seeing screens coming and getting around them more quickly so he's not getting beaten by guys. And when when he's doing that, it's impossible. What are you going to do? You can't shoot over the guy. There's no point guard in the league that can reasonably shoot over him. There are still times where he'll occasionally get juked out a little, and he's back in the picture before the guy can even get the shot off, putting a hand in their face. He's been a, he's really been a revelation on that end, and as he starts to pick up the mental stuff that goes along with it, which we're seeing lately, it's really impressive. Yeah, so he did he end up with five points last night? Yeah, that, and they were, these, they were the first five points. <laughs> right. So had those first five important points, but then didn't score, but then absolutely impacted the game on the defensive end, I believe he held Tony Parker to five points as well. Two, so Two and nine shooting to if, Parker. If you can hold Tony Parker to five points, you, you've done your job for the night. You know, No matter how many points you end up scoring, if you can hold Tony Parker to five points, I believe four assists as well. Like That's, again, you've done it. Congratulations. Bravo, Dante Exum. Quinn Snyder actually wrote the book on pick-and-roll defense, right? Wrote this amazing FIBA article that's 20 pages long and is is incredibly in-depth for it. It's... It's like coach's porn almost in terms of just how fundamentally in-depth and, and brilliant this this analysis is. That he said such nice things about Dante Exum's pick-and-roll defense speaks volumes about how good it actually is. Yeah, it was, it was really excellent. And you know the pick-and-roll is the most commonly used play in the NBA. And if you can't defend it, you're in real trouble, especially as a point guard. So it's been really impressive, definitely. 
Elijah Millsap is another guy because guys coming up from the D League usually aren't fantastic defensively. Like you know, they try and but over overall they're outmatched from a physical point of view. Uh-huh. They usually just are. They're undersized. They're not quick enough, or otherwise they'd be in the NBA, right? Yeah. Elijah Millsap's been an exception with how physically he's played, how much he's shown that he wants to be in, involved. He's going over screens. He's he's causing uh, offensive fouls for the other team. Uh, what have you made of his defensive performance thus far? The thing with him is that even when it's a non-threatening action, like even when the guard is holding the ball, just waiting for the play to start, waiting for somebody to come set a screen, waiting for action off for a pin down on the weak side, whatever, he's in their face. You don't get a free moment when he's defending you. You have to be aware at one hundred percent of the time, and that's a that's a real thing that disrupts teams. Teams some guys sometimes count on those few seconds where they're not going to be pressured, where they can set things up, you know? He just does not give that. He's in your face inches away from you the entire time. That's what's most impressive to him about that, about him to me. Do you think he's an elite defender right now, like a, a Tony Allen, Kawhi Leonard guy, or do you think not he's... Not quite that level, but the next tier down, I would put him at as a defender. So already, just an excellent, excellent NBA defender. See, yeah. that that's surprising to me, because again, that, that doesn't happen, that you just call-up guys from the D-League, and they're that good at one side of the ball right away. He's really good at staying in a stance. He's really good at at leveraging. His footwork is excellent. Like He doesn't take any steps that he doesn't need to take while he's on defense. He conserves his space and movement really well. Yeah, he's a really impressive defender, and if he keeps... I mean, the shooting's been on and off, but if he keeps up with it, he's going to be a real valuable find for the Jazz, because if that guy can keep shooting 35-plus percent from three and play this kind of defense, that's an asset in this league. Yeah, and and I think he just has to make better decisions on offense in the D League, he was able to do well by getting to the foul line as much as possible mm-hmm. and kind of being that guy. He hasn't been able to be that guy in the in the NBA thus far. He's not been able to draw fouls against again the larger, taller defenders. So now he just needs to kind of reconfigure his game a little bit, be more of the outside guy, maybe ex- uh, occasionally to- driving and or pump and drive, but not. Not as often as he currently does. He needs to shoot a ton of corner threes in practice. He needs to just yes. keep shooting corner threes all day. Gordon Hayward's defense. I, I I keep on waffling on how good Gordon Hayward is defensively because he will show flashes and then you'll see him get beat back door. And I, I really think it is just like a focus and effort thing with him, especially with him taking so much of the of the ball on the offensive end. I would agree. And what Quinn said in the quote that we just played was I, I think is accurate, and it's something that Quinn has touched on all year, at least especially for the last couple of months, is that Gordon's biggest improvement defensively has been away from the ball. And he, you heard Quinn use the term stunt in the quote that right. we just said. That's pretty much what I was talking about in the first segment where a guy comes over just to – it's just a show. You're not actually guarding that guy. You're just putting a hand on him quick enough so that your his actual guy can recover back to him. Gordon did that a bunch last night. He did it really, really well. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I've been impressed with. His on-ball, like you say, kind of comes and goes sometimes, depending on... I don't know what it depends on, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I can't really tell. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I think that's interesting. I, I think he has the ability to then turn it up in, say, a playoff series, should the Jazz get to want it in years future. Yeah. Uh, Trey Burke has been interesting to me because, you know, all of a sudden, without Enes Kanter on the floor, it seems like he's playing better defense as well. I, I don't know how much his defense has changed, but uh, all of a sudden, Quinn Snyder is really crediting his effort he has talked about in press conferences being a little bit frustrated when he doesn't get the help behind him. It kind of 
not very well veiled references to Ennis Cantor's defense behind him. Now that's not there anymore. It, is he actually trying harder, or is it just the rest of the defense is making him look good? Well, I should hope future-wise that he was trying just as hard with <laughs> Ennis there, and maybe right. it's just that he wasn't getting the help that he needed. I I can't necessarily speak to his mental level or whatever that is, but I, I do think that you're seeing the effects of him having... Maybe it's a subconscious thing. Maybe it's that he, you know, he's subconsciously aware that he's got help behind him, so he knows that he can be a little more aggressive and assertive with his defense and that if he does make a mistake that he's not necessarily going to pay for it every time it's hard to say but I do think you've, you've seen he's been be- I think he the Jazz's defensive rating over the last two games while he's been in there has been like actually kind of nutty low like it's huh. been one of especially last night I think it was like a 75 per 100 possessions or something do you like think that. maybe that's because he's playing more minutes against bench units I do or? think that's all that was going to be my next point I think that's another thing as well you're going again he's going again more minutes at least against backup points who just those guys can't break you down as easily as the starters can right that makes sense you know you're playing no you're not playing Damian Lillard you're playing Steve Blake exactly uh Derek Favors I, I want to make this point about Derek Favors all of a sudden for the first time probably in his life he is not guarding the opponent's best big man right yeah. Rudy Gobert has guarded Marcus Aldridge Tim Duncan and for the foreseeable future will guard the team's best big man out there, I, I mean, I mean, I don't think there's really any question. Mm. Now, Derek Favors is guarding the Aaron Baines and the Robin Lopez's of the world, and now he's able to actually do what he does best, which is help side defense. Yeah, and I'm I raise my fists in triumph because I've been, <laughs> I've been saying since the middle of last year, and this is going to be in my piece tomorrow also that Derek and it's it's not necessarily a positional question, although I phrased it that way, but it's the basically what you said that Derek no longer has to take the best big on the other team, no matter what. That he's he can get assignments of guys that aren't taller than him and don't have certain advantages over him, and you can see what's happening. It's been a godsend. He's flying out of off the weak side to block guys that had no clue he was even there. It's been it's been really fun to watch that, and it makes me happy because I like being right about stuff. Yeah, well, okay, you're not that you I was the right only person the, to ever say that, but yeah. you were right about the position thing, but you never were like, well, the Jazz need an elite elite. Big man, one of the best big man defenders of all time thus far in his NBA career. I didn't to, get quite that specific. No, you just right. said he needs to play power forward. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm giving you a half a win on that. Okay, I'll take it. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think he's been great. That one play last night when Tim Duncan was challenging Rudy Gobert, got past him but didn't see the secondary defender in, yep. Tim, uh, in Derek Favors for the block was, was an amazing play. Yep. But let's talk about the man himself, Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert. I mean, the... the let me just read you some stats, first of all. And these stats, thank you for looking them up, by the way. Uh, just number one in the NBA by a huge margin in these rim protection stats that Seth Partnow, our guest later on the show, is, is going to be um, talking about a little bit. So 4.38 points saved per 36 minutes that he's on the floor. At, that's at the rim. Just at the ri- Just at the rim. It's mm-hmm. not even like the rest of his defending, and admittedly that's mostly at the rim. But still, like... That's a big difference. That's like a, I don't know, how. what would you compare an offensive player who makes that sort of difference? Uh, that's a tough compare. My like, the easier point of comparison for me is looking at who's in second place and what okay. their number is. Okay, help me out. So that's first place, 4.38 per, per 36. Second place is Hassan Whiteside at 3.11. Okay. That's a huge, and then there's like a few more guys in the, in the high twos type of thing. And then the after that, it goes down to the ones and everything. And that's those are actual... NBA points. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a and that those is point, actually point by the way another caveat that is only since those were updated at the All Star break. Those don't even include the two oh. games since the All Star break where Rudy's been completely dominant defensively. So they might be even better since then. 
Well, that's fun. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, honestly. The Jazz's defensive rating while he's been on the floor, the per per 100 possessions rating, it's been great all year, but it's been, like, unconsciously great since Cantor's been gone, which, again, small sample. It'll probably come back up eventually, but it's a good starting point. 83.5 since he's been on the team. So, again, average is about, what would you say, 98, something like that? Yeah, the best defense in the league on the year is, like, 94-ish type thing. So, that's yeah, that's a barometer for that. Uh, So, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. I just think that he is remarkable. Like someone, I, I can't figure out the comparisons for him. I've I've heard uh, Mark Eaton, but with an offensive role game. I've heard and and maybe a better mover. I've heard uh, Marcus Camby as as a comp for Rudy Gobert. We just haven't seen anyone this long ever I don't think do this. Is. I don't think there is a realistic comparison you can make for him without having to attach a but with. This on, on, <laughs> on the back end of it. La, the actually the best one that I've heard is he's the defensive version of 1994 Sean Kemp. That I thought that one was like huh. sort of reasonable, but also still not. Because but that's Sean wild. Kemp yeah, <laughs> Sean Kemp wasn't didn't have a seven foot eight wingspan like that. You know, he was huge, but like I really don't think there's a, a straight apples to apples comparable for Gobert in, in maybe in history. How many children will Rudy Gobert have? What I'm just I'm referencing Sean Kemp's oh right <laughs> amazing sorry, I, fathering gosh. abilities. I feel like an idiot. He, for he's not a legend that right away. That was terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. I. Yeah. Rudy Gobert again. We can't exclaim how great he's been because not only is he blocking the shots at the rim, opponents are shooting just 39% at the rim, which these are layups. You know, NBA players are good at making layups, and he they're only shooting 39% against them. But then. Given that, now all of a sudden players aren't taking layups anywhere near and they're having to take these super hard kind of mid-range outside shots that the that the Jazz don't want to, or sorry, that the Jazz's opponents don't want to take. So not only is he blocking the shots, he's impacting other ones and then preventing teams from getting to the rim at all. Like, it, it's the total defensive package. And just the amount that he's improving from game to game. I noted a few weeks ago that there were certain things opponents were doing that were kind of occasionally getting past him, pump fakes, things yeah, the, like that. Yeah, the Portland game. LaMarcus Aldridge got him early with two pump fakes that, that cost him two early fouls, caused him to sit early in the game then after that they went to that pump fake understandably so multiple times both Aldridge and Lopez and Rudy Gobert didn't bite he just stood on the floor and used his 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 length I mean he's learning within NBA games yeah it's really and then last night Duncan got him with a pump fake and he still blocked the shot Duncan (laughs) got him up in the air went back up for the shot and Rudy was back in the air by the time he got the shot off and swatted he's almost got like a Dennis Rodman-esque second jump as well which Mm -hmm. is I mean also helps his rebounding ability Uh, we've seen how great of a rebounder he's been over the last two games as well yeah it's really remarkable the the Jazz have a cornerstone defensively here the Jazz yeah, have right? a cornerstone defense like we have sentence. never had. Like literally since I was born, the Jazz have not had a cornerstone defensively. Yeah, it's Full really stop. fun. Now we do. Awesome. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I, I can't believe it as a Jazz fan. I can't. I, I'm just in utter awe of what Rudy Gobert is and can be. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch the, for the next several years. All right. Well, as I as I take a deep breath, <laughs> get a get a sip of water. We're going to go ahead and take a break. Seth Partner on the back end, guys. <laughs> Thanks. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right. Welcome back into the show. Uh, so we, we've got Seth Partner on the line, and we've only got him for a limited time. So I, I've got a tweet to read, but we'll, we'll save it for the next segment. Uh, Seth, are you there? Maybe. Soon. Yes? Seth? 
Yeah. Hello. Can you hear me? Hey there. Yes, we can. Cool. Okay. So, uh, Seth, I didn't give you a great introduction, but basically, if there's a place that you have read things about NBA basketball, I feel like you've written for them at some point. Uh, That's that's probably not totally true. (laughs) (laughs) It's close enough, though, I think. All right. Well, we've been we've been kind of orgasming about Rudy Gobert, um, and, and so I want to. <laughs> sorry, I, I'll, okay. yeah. I'll, I, I'll, I apologize. Everyone's looking at me funny. Go, go, go um, on. Um. <laughs> you just calculated those those stats we just uh, have been talking about the rim protection stats, where he's phenomenal. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to get, I guess, an update on that. I guess you have them over the last two games as well. Uh, yeah, I just updated them uh, through last night's games, um, and he's uh, you know on a per minute basis and a per game basis uh, still still leading the league by a, a decent margin. It was it was something like uh, I think before the the break it was uh, I have them written down here it was four point three eight was the points per thirty six saved and Whiteside was second at three point one one has the gap go we th- we theorized that the gap may have gotten even larger because he's had two really Gobert's had two really good games since then is that the case? Um, he's actually it's actually that you know and these are estimates so I, I you know I don't want to say that, that he's done well or poorly in the last couple of games it's actually uh, three point nine per thirty six now and oh, okay. second place is. Andrew Bogut is now in second place, uh, oh. kind of marginally ahead of Whiteside. Okay. But those, uh, the, those three and Roy Hibbert have been kind of the top four, especially since Whiteside got enough minutes to, to qualify and, and, and make sure I have a meaningful sample size. So those, those four have been, those have been the top four by a decent margin kind of all year. Um, okay. With, uh, although just looking at it now, actually, Timo Moskov in Cleveland has been, uh, quite good as we've kind of, all seen, I think. Huh, interesting. I, I mean, I know he's been good. I didn't quite realize he'd been maybe on those guys' type of level, but that's cool. Do, do you think I, it's I'm sustainable? Maybe sort of a half step down, from, but, but still very good. Okay. Sorry, do you, do you think Gobert's performance thus far is sustainable? That's an excellent question. Um, I, is he going to always be a, or, or likely to be a very good rim protector? Yes. Um, certainly looking from that last year to this year, it's 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 somewhat volatile, um, whether, you know, going from a guy playing 20 minutes a game to a guy playing 35 minutes a game, it's, it's sustainable. Uh, I have kind of some doubts. Um, certainly last year, there were a lot of guys who scored highly on a permanent basis who were, uh, sorry, on a per minute basis who were kind of of that, you know, 18 to 22 minute backup, don't care how much I foul, um, kind of guys. And, and, you know, those maybe come and go a little bit. Um, whereas, Guys who are you know playing starters minutes and doing well maybe seem to be a little uh, a little more stable I guess. Okay, and really but it's, it's only it's a year and a half worth of data, so I don't want to you know make make broad claims about <laughs> what it does or doesn't mean yet. But yeah. other than the fact that he's been you know by any metric you want to use, whether it's you know ball eye test or kind of the, the involved sport and stuff, he's been excellent at protecting the rim this season. Absolutely, and it's great for us Jazz fans to hear. Well, let's let's transition just a little bit because I'm the only person currently in on this conversation <laughs> who will not be attending the Sports Sloan, the Sloan Sports Conference. It's good I'm not attending because I can't say the name. This uh, this weekend in, at MIT in Boston, both of you will be going. Remind me, Seth, is this, did you go last year or is this the first year you've gone? Uh, it's going to be my first time. Okay, very nice. So tell me, and I'm going to ask both of you, we'll go Seth first, what are you most looking forward to that you've seen on the schedule? Um, some of the stuff on the schedule I'm most looking forward to is probably some of the performance, kind of sports science, uh, health and, and recovery kind of stuff. I think 
that's going to be both some of the more interesting stuff of kind of across sports, but also I think the things that are, good are we're going to learn the most useful stuff because it's it's it it's new enough that I don't think it's been it's well developed enough that the stuff is meaningful, but not as not adopted to the point where um, everything interesting is kind of behind closed doors. Okay. What about you, Andy? Yeah, I, I mean, my favorite part isn't really the panels, um, although I thought the, the conversation with Adam Silver was great last year, and, and I'm actually looking for the conversation with uh, Don Garber, the MLS commissioner. That I'm looking forward to that a lot as well. But I think maybe the best part of the conference is a chance to talk to all these people that I've, I've kind of interacted with online, like Seth, um, and then kind of interact with the, the NBA personnel who are there. The Jazz will be sending someone, uh, I believe... 29 NBA teams sent someone last year. I don't know what the number will be this year. Um, but just kind of interacting with people, getting their perspective on what's going on inside of front offices around the league, um, that, that that's when I've learned the most and, and what I'm most excited for this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's the part I'm most jealous of you guys for. <laughs> and I was, I was really hoping, I checked the weather today, I was hoping it was going to be like awful so I could send tweets the whole weekend about how great the weather is here <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and how terrible it is there. But it looks like it's actually going to be okay, so I can't do that and I'll just be bitter sitting on Salt Lake. <laughs> but that's all right. Um, Seth, I wanted to ask, there's been a lot of talk about analytics recently, and you're one of the, the premier people for that. And the, the, specifically, there was an article by, by Kevin Pelton that kind of ranked the within the, the league the, the teams that embrace analytics, the teams that are not into it at all, things like that. Real quick, because we, we delayed ourselves talking about Gobert a lot, what do you think of, the, of that article, and did you agree or disagree with kind of some of the assessments there based on the people you've talked to? Um, I, the, the rankings part of it, I don't want to, you know, I think he's probably got better sources than I do, but to the extent that I have talked to, and I, I talked to a fair few people in the league, I think the information, you know, behind the rankings is, uh, basically along the lines of, of, you know, uh, what I've heard now, would I maybe would have ranked some teams differently? Perhaps I think that, for example, uh, you know, uh, Portland, I would have put higher just because, the fact that you know Terry Stotts actually there's kind of a through line from the analyst to the court, um, and you can see it, and it's it's well embraced. That I think that that perhaps means more than you know a team that has a you know a big department doing interesting things that nobody then listens to. So, and I, I don't have a specific example for that kind of team, but I think that you know the the fact that Portland is actually um, integrating what what they're doing. More than than most teams, I think is is something that's 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 important. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, Seth, thank you so much for joining us. We've got to cut you off, but uh, where can we follow you, real quick? Uh, just at Seth Partnow on Twitter, and I'll be uh, tweeting from Sloan all weekend. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Seth. Sorry to have to cut you off again so soon. That's Stupid right. commercial breaks and stuff. <laughs> we will be back on the other side, guys. This is Salt City Hoops Radio on ESPN seven hundred. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett on the other side. So we've got 11 trades that happened last week in the trade deadline. And so I, I want to get into them and, and what we would give them as what we would grade them out as, I guess. We're, we're going to be the, the professor here grading the 11 trades that happened this week. Just want to read a quick tweet first, of course. Ask that Doolin kid asking me, you weren't alive in 1992-93. That was Eaton's last season, Mark Eaton. Remember I had said earlier in the show that Rudy Gobert was the only jazz defensive superstar in my lifetime. 
Fair. I think so. First of all, Mark Eaton's last season was not good. He only blocked a shot and a half per game. Um, only was <laughs> okay. Fair, but um, and an actual one point two to be exact. Only played seventeen minutes a game though, so you know, still per minute wise. But he's a thirty-six-year-old Mark Eaton. You know, not yeah. not that scary from a from a opponent point of view. And then on offense, he's only putting up 8.7, which I know is not part of what I said, but 8.7 PER, I should say. Yeah. So I guess not that made, I guess that sort of made me a liar by, by osmosis then because I was four but, at the time. So it's, I was alive for a couple of his better years. Yeah. I mean, he was an all-star in 88, 89. Were you alive then? Yeah. I was born in 88. So okay. I was just barely alive. <laughs> so, you know, Ben was one. I was born in 91, so I was not yet alive. I, let's say I wasn't there for the Mark Eaton elite years. Fair enough. Um, so I, I'm standing by that he was – Rudy Gobert is the first amazing defensive jazz presence in my lifetime. Yep. Okay. Just wanted to get that out of the way. Just clear that up. Trade deadline grades. 11 trades to talk about. We've talked about the Ennis Cantor trade a little bit. Uh, you gave the deal an A minus from the Jazz's point of view. Just just a recap of what that trade is. It's Ennis Cantor, Steve Novak uh, from the Jazz to the Thunder. Kyle Singler, DJ Augustine from the Pistons also went to the Thunder. Uh, the Thunder sent Reggie Jackson to the Pistons, and then Kendrick Perkins, a first round pick, and uh, the rights of Tibor Plice to the Jazz, and then the Pistons sent a second round pick to. Jazz. Does that all make sense? That does. I make mean, sense. we've all seen the steal by now, right? Yeah. We're we're all jazz fans. Yeah, we're there. Um, I give it B plus for the Jazz. B plus. You give the B plus. I gave them an A minus. I gave Oklahoma City a B minus, and I gave the Pistons a C plus because my opinions on Reggie Jackson are well known. Yeah, I I actually gave the Pistons a C because mm. I I maybe even think less of him. But I, I mean, value wise, they got a decent trade for Reggie Jackson. They didn't have to give up a first rounder in order to get him. They, I do they, like Kyle Singler though. And that yeah. was part of the reason I actually didn't give Oklahoma City a lower grade, but I because I think they gave up a bit, like a, a decent bit. Yeah, but I mean, is it going to be great for them? They they didn't give up anything important. They helped their bench. Um, you know, Reggie Jackson is probably addition by subtraction. Getting could rid be. of him very well could be. And, and so I I think they did pretty well. Yeah, I, in retrospect, I could have given them a flat B instead of a B minus. Whatever. It's a couple percentage points. So <laughs> everybody knows that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I gave him a B plus, but I, I think we're in the same ballpark here. Okay, let's let's move on. We we've got so many trades to talk yeah, about. We can't we lot. can't. Yeah, uh, Goran and Zoran Dragic. Thank it's God Dragic. that they're Isn't staying Dragic? together. Dragic. Dragic. Yeah, we we. I even had a commenter point this out, and I still said it wrong. <laughs> it's, it's all the tennis names that are screwing me up, and, wow. I, and I apologize to the entire Dragic. I will give a T-shirt to anyone who can spell that. <laughs> well, it's easy to spell. That's not the hard part. Yeah. You know, spell Antetokounmpo for me, and then we, we can talk. But um, There's an O in there somewhere. There is. It's near the yeah, end. Yeah, I only know what that means. <laughs> John's That's the actually on my question. Did you know that? That that Derek Favors quote is I asked him about uh, whether he thought the Jazz would win more than the lottery plus minus total. Or sorry, the, the Vegas plus minus total for the wins. For wins this year for the and Jazz, I believe said. it was 25. Like, moon. Man, I don't even know what that means. 
I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you do a decent Derek Favors, except not really. No, I don't. Uh, so this trade. Sorry, yes. <laughs> three-team trade here. I'll tell them the particulars of this one. The Heat got Goran and Zoran Dragic, the, both the, uh, the, twi- the, Dragic, the Dragai twins there. The New Orleans Pelicans received Norris Cole and Sean Williams, who I believe they waived, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the Phoenix Suns received Danny Granger, John Salmons, Justin Hamilton, Man, two first-round picks from Miami. Their 2017 first-rounder, which is top seven protected, and then their 21, 2021 Miami first-round pick, which is that's crazy. That we've yeah, which sounds like the, the future. Decade. Like, we're all going to die in nuclear warfare before 2021. Yeah, but if we so don't, then that's a terrible trade for the Heat. And I actually gave him a C for that because giving up an unprotected first-rounder just because you think – Pat Riley thinks he'll be dead at that point. Is probably not the best move for the organization. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I actually was a little different, and I gave them huh. a B plus, but it was because I, I wanted to give them the grade in the mindset that they had when they made it. Because now that <laughs> now that we know that Chris Bosh is going to be out for the year, that if they had known that beforehand, I think there's almost no chance they do that because okay. that pretty much removed their chance of being a real competitor in the East, yeah. like, even with Drogic. But at the time when they thought they had Bosh good for the year. That starting five would have been really menacing, and that would have been a really tough out for a team. And I thought that it was, in a sense, worth it for them to try and, you know, make that, you know, first of all, the pick is, is protected in 2017, and they, you know, they hope at least to still be good. They're still going to have Bosch by then. Who knows if that's the case or not. And 2021 is like so far away that the lottery might even be different. And they, there might yeah. not even be a draft anymore. We might, <laughs> there will like, be a draft. Yeah, no, I know. Obviously, I'm exaggerating a little. So I did give them a B plus, but with if we had known the Bosch news, of course, it would have been a very different grade, I think. Okay. No, that's fair. I, I, I think the Suns did well, though, for them to... for. Goran to have said the things that he said that were so negative about the Suns, they had to get rid of him because, again, he wasn't resigning there in two months. You have to get something in return for them. And so for them to get an unprotected first rounder plus a second first rounder plus these kind of other nice pieces, I don't know about nice pieces, but yeah. like middling pieces, is is a good return for them. Uh that they then dealed Isaiah Thomas as well was was a little bit surprising to me. Yeah, they got Brandon Knight back in that one, which we'll get to in a second. I gave them a B plus also, and then I gave New Orleans a C because they were barely even involved, to be totally honest. And Norris Cole really doesn't move the needle for them at all, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I get it. I gave the Suns an A minus for that. And okay, Pelicans. I don't even. I didn't give them a grade. I mean, me. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> next, well, the Brandon Knight's the next one, right? Yeah, Brandon Knight and uh, Marcus Thornton to the Suns. And then Michael Carter-Williams, Miles Plumley, and Tyler Ennis to the Bucks. Lakers' top five protected first-round pick to the Sixers. And then Isaiah Thomas to the Celtics. Okay. Let's- now, I actually had these in the, the grades that I did for Basketball Insiders. I had these broken up as two different trades. Okay. I had the Isaiah Thomas for Marcus Thornton and the Cleveland first-rounder as one, and then all those other pieces as the second one. But I can still give the general grades there. Yeah. Let's- I thought Boston made out like bandits personally. Yeah. Um, I-, I gave them an A-. minus. I did too. I, I I think the only team that did better was the Sixers. Um, mm-hmm. Michael Carter-Williams is an interesting player because – he was a rookie of the year last year, you know, clearly has talent, but then is just woefully inefficient right now. It doesn't look good on at least the offensive side of the floor. Defensively, he actually is surprisingly decent. Yeah. I um, gave I gave them a B because this was the last one that I wrote up in the article and I was so sick of talking about Sam Hinkey by that point that I was just <laughs> like, dude, dude, you get a B, even though it was probably especially based on the what we know they like to do with their team building, it was I think it was a good move. Yeah, I, I gave them straight up an A for this particular move. Yeah, I would if I that would be I think the one that if I could go back and change it, I would probably <laughs> 
probably make it a little higher given okay. the research I've done since then and the fact that I was just tired of Sam Hinkie at that point. What do you think about the Bucks part of the deal, getting MCW and, and losing Brandon Knight? I thought that, again, you have to look at it through the context of what a team is trying to do with their own team building, you know? And Milwaukee's really in on this. Let's get a whole bunch of guys that are really similar height-wise and that way we can, kind of like Golden State does defensively, they can switch everything. And we've seen, I mean, it's working for Milwaukee really well already this year. They're the second best defensive team in the league, despite losing one of the best defensive centers in the league, which is, so I think that's good. And you're right, MCW's been really inefficient. I think it is, to some point, hard to separate that from how just unbelievably bad the on-court situation is in Philadelphia, which is by design, of course, and that's why they got rid of him, is that even even as an inefficient player like he was, he was still kind of too good to, to be yeah. on that roster right now. Like that same thing with KJ McDaniels, who we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, I like Plumley. I've always been a fan of both Plumlie. Um And <laughs> I I was okay with it from Milwaukee. I gave them a B plus. What about you? Yeah, I, I gave them a, a B minus. I mean, ultimately, I just am not... Uh, Buying Michael Carter Williams. Yeah, a lot of it depends um, on what you think of him. But for their goals, I think it does fit reasonably well because they're going to be able to trot out a starting lineup in a couple of years, assuming they keep Middleton. Let's cross our fingers they don't because I want them here in Utah next year. <laughs> but uh, that if they do that, they're going to have it like four guys in their starting roster in their starting lineup that can switch everything every single time, no matter mm. what. And that's valuable in a league that runs the pick and roll as often as the NBA does. That's a fun point. I hadn't thought of that. So that, Brandon that's Knight's one. not that guy. Yeah, no, definitely not. And, and then I gave Phoenix a C plus because. I understand that Thomas had issues in the in the locker room. There were a lot of reports about that, both in Sacramento and in Phoenix. I, but you can, first of all, it's only been a little while with him being there. He wasn't there for that long. They were getting Dragic out as it was, so there was going to be more playing time available. And he, frankly, his contract is great for what he does on the court. Yeah. It's really, really good. And I think that they got a first round out of a first rounder out of it. It's a late first rounder, but. Uh, I think if it were me, I might have, and I, of course, I don't know the inner workings of what went on with him, but I might have given it a little bit more of a shot to with him. See, and it's weird. I, I like Isaiah Thomas, and I think you're right that his contract is phenomenal. I just keep hearing little rumors from around the, yeah. around the league that it's like Isaiah Thomas is locker room cancer and yeah. is is hurting what we do, and and you know he is small and not that great of a defender, though I think that's actually a little bit overstated to a point. Um, yeah. But you just hear all these like little rumors that are are not guys wanting to actually go on on record and say anything, but are clearly reasons that he was not more sought after. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and those are fair. Um, and I, I think a lot of that goes into just we don't necessarily know everything that happened there. And if we knew more about it, we'd be able to comment more effectively. But we yeah. So I, I just in general, I I the contract is so good for him. That was the main crux of that argument yeah. for me. No, I agree. I, I gave them a B minus, so I'm in the same boat. For okay. Them. Uh, so we kind of already talked about the Norris Cole to the Pelicans. I just want to say that the John Salmons to the Sun part of that deal, I give an F because if you're acquiring John Salmons, I give you an F in any trade. Generally, I was at the time I was like, wait, John Salmons is still in the league. <laughs> like when that happened, so that was I didn't really say that by the way. I knew John Salmons. I just think it's funny how often he's traded and how immediately the team who trades for him wants to get rid for him, uh, rid of him, both front office, both. Uh, 
fans, even coaches, and no one can stand this guy. Yeah, he's one of those guys that I would have thought by now would be playing in China or Europe just because he could play. He could be good in a place like that instead of just having to move every like six months. But apparently that's not what's going on with him, and he still makes a bit of money. So that's uh, I guess that's the reason for that. The next one we're doing is the the KJ McDaniel's one, right? Yeah. So the Suns, or excuse me, the Seventy Sixers traded KJ McDaniel's, who they drafted in the second round this year, for Isaiah Kanan and a, a future second round pick. Now, there's been a lot. This one has actually been one of the more hotly debated trades around. And uh, Seth, who we just had on last segment, actually wrote in in major favor of this trade for Philadelphia because, and his rationale, which which I make sense, is that the the Philly is pursuing the idea of the of essentially perfection in a few years, not now. <laughs> right yeah. now, they want to be as bad as possible, right. and they want to stockpile as many top five picks essentially as they can reasonably and then try and get them all coming into their prime sort of at the same sort of time. But it does feel like they want to draft like three superstars. Yeah, that's pretty – it looks like they're – and anybody, any long-term money on their books who doesn't have that potential kind of has to go. And that's I understand. Why? I and no, and so here's the thing: is that <laughs> it, my my thing is that I don't agree with that like, assessment. Yeah, at all. you can you can pay three superstars and keep KJ McDaniel's on a reasonable deal. Yeah, but, especially with the cap rising and you know all of that. I think you can you can do both. Yeah, the the, the and the main thing. And it's not it like actually, it's not going to be a tradable contract. Yeah, and there's no. I mean, you know, and KJ has been a lot. He's been a little overrated. I think people have uh, you know assumed that he's going to be like the next coming of some great play. He's not. This isn't like an all you know a right away all star. Our trajectory player. He's shooting like 29% from three or something like that. But at the same time, he's a capable player who's going to play minutes for Houston pretty much right away. And even if that so is not that many minutes, not many, but he's going to play some. And if you, if that's your line of thinking going in, which is, you know, the whole perfection in a few years and nothing clogs up the long-term cap until then, then why not get more back was my thing. Because they got Isaiah Kanan is to me doesn't move the needle at all, and as we know, Hinky loves second round picks, so I guess he really valued <laughs> that really highly. But to me, a guy like this that's played as well as he has, I think it's worth more, and I think it goes it goes back to actually, I think the bad decision for them with McDaniel's was the way that they approached the summer when they so yeah. when they first drafted him, signing him to basically having him take the equivalent of a rookie qualifying offer instead of signing him to the typical multi-year rookie contract, so he becomes a restricted free agent at the end of this season, which that was pretty much just saying, like, hey, we drafted you, but don't have any interest in keeping you long-term. Well, they did. They just wanted to keep him for the minimum for the four years, and I think that was a mistake, right? Like, they offered them him this four-year minimum deal, which some second-round guys take. We saw Paul Millsap take a kind Mm -hmm. of a similar deal, although that one was only three years. We saw Chandler Parsons do the same thing, but... KJ McDaniels understandably wanted to bet on his talent and say, no, you know, if I do well this season, I want a bigger deal. I want more than a minimum deal. And I think that's probably the right call. I I, I think what hurt Philadelphia here is that they wouldn't budge off the four-year demand and wouldn't yeah. go to like two years or three years mm-hmm. at a minimum. They wanted all four, and and it's cost them. Yeah, I think that you know you could have kept a guy for a real cheap price who's not he's not good enough yet that he's going to be getting you three or four extra wins a year that are going to hurt your draft slot. He's nowhere near that good right now, but he could be eventually. 
I gave Houston a flat A, and I gave Philly a D plus because I think Houston gave up absolutely nothing that they cared about whatsoever. But they now control the matching rights on a guy who could be very valuable down the line. I thought it was kind of a heist job, personally. Yeah. What, what did you give? I mean, I, I gave it an A minus for the Rockets and a, a C plus for the Sixers, so okay. maybe a little bit more moderate, yeah. but still. I mean, from a consistency of approach standpoint, it does fit with what the Sixers have been doing. So you you got to right. give them credit there. They didn't but, deviate from the plan, but at the same time, in this case, I think it's a flaw plan uh, yeah i mean at a certain point again we're seeing with this with the jazz right now where you have to sculpt a team at some point in in the rebuilding process and mm-hmm. i don't think that that deviates from the plan necessarily to keep guys that you draft for longer than half a season yeah yeah i would agree let's move on to the next rockets trade they traded for pablo prigioni uh of the new york knicks got back two second round picks um new york did so your thoughts on the deal i i, yeah. I thought it was a good team a good trade for both teams yeah Prigioni makes the Rockets better. Two second round picks makes the Knicks better. They both did well. A minus for both. I gave them both a B minus just because I was so neutral on it. That I just <laughs> okay. didn't even care you were, about you it. You were that meh. Much. Yeah. That's fine. Pretty meh. Um, this next trade is actually really interesting for the Western Conference playoff race. Aaron Aflalo and Alonzo Gee to the Blazers um, in exchange for Thomas Robinson, Will Barton, Victor Claver, uh, and a lottery protected 2016 first round pick to the Nuggets. I thought this one was interesting. I definitely I liked it for Portland. They needed that wing depth really badly. They Batum has been having a real down year with the wrist, and they need somebody yeah. who can shoot the ball from that position when they need it. And I, I liked it for them. I haven't had a chance to because in that first game where the Jazz played them Friday night, a flawless wasn't active yet, so I haven't had a chance to watch them with a flawless. But I, I think it was good, and it'll be even better if things work out and they can convince a flawless to pick up his player option next year, which is just seven point seven five million. I think that'd be a real big boon for them. Who knows if he will or not but uh if they could get him to i think you'd raise the grade even more i gave them a b plus and then for denver uh i gave them a b minus they were in kind of full-on fire sale mode that i you know they acquired a couple of picks they should get the first rounder next year because the protection shouldn't come on it because of where portland's going to likely finish um so it was okay for them they've they bought out robinson and claver already um, so it's pretty much just fire sale mode for them. Yeah, but I think it's a decent return given how much they had to, how many different players they had to offer, and kind of what they had on the market. Yeah, I think a first round pick is pretty reasonable in return. Um, again, especially like you look at what the Jazz got for Ennis Cantor, who I think is, I don't know if you want to say he's a more impactful player, but maybe I might think might have more value. And you, it's about the same level of draft pick in my mind. Yeah. Um. Let's move on to, let's see, what's next? The Kevin Garnett deal. KG. Ah, this one's so great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's simple. Kevin Garnett to the Timberwolves in exchange for Thaddeus Young to the Nets. Um, so this seems like a, a, a nostalgia play by the Timberwolves, oh, right? No, like they just else. love Kevin Garnett. They want him to return home for the rest of his career. There's, there's kind of talk that he might sign a two-year deal and maybe help their young players grow and, and become better. I mean, do you put any stock into that? I, I think that actually got refuted unless it's been in the last couple of days. The the initial reports that he would consider signing an extension were refuted, if okay. I'm not mistaken. But it's a total nostalgia play for them. And frankly, given where their team's at currently and given that Young was very likely gone next year anyway, he had an early termination clause in his contract and things just kind of weren't working out over there in Minnesota. I like it for them. I, I mean, I don't love it. They didn't bring themselves a future asset or anything like that, but I think it was going to be very hard to get one of those. For they that traded anyway. a first round pick for him earlier that's, this summer. That's, that's, that's the, problem. the problem. Yes, is that? But that I I do actually grade those as two separate. Yeah, things. Uh, they sure. just should have never given up a first round pick for Thad Young in the first. Sure, place. but don't you at least have to get like a second back? Don't you think there's a market out there for someone to give up a, a second for that? I mean, there uh, might have been, uh, but I think they. Prigioni got two. Yeah, I in that. 
regard, but I wasn't grading the the original trade for yeah, Young. Uh, but I know, but even even in a vacuum, I I think they could have gotten got... a bit more. I gave them a flat B. Probably should have been a little bit lower, but I like KG and they <laughs> and they're you know. It Frankly, is fun. They've had the worst attendance in the NBA this season and don't think they don't know it. And there is, to a point, NBA front offices, there has to be money rolling in for th- good things to happen yeah. to a certain point. And, you know, their time isn't for another couple of years in terms of when they're trying to contend. They're at the very start of that sort of rebuild cycle. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I think he plays his first game tomorrow night and it's going to be awesome. I'm going to be watching if I can. Like, that's going to be really cool when he gets introduced. That I'm cool with it. I gave, <laughs> I gave Brooklyn a B plus because they got the better player in the deal by a lot. And, yeah. Let, let's do these next three trades really quick. Um, Tayshaun Prince to the Pistons, Kiki DePotome, and, and Jonas Drebko to the Celtics. Uh, again, another guy going home to where he started his career. Yeah, I another one where, like, not meh, but like sort of meh. I gave them, <laughs> I gave them both B-minuses again. Yeah, I, I think this is worse for the Pistons just because I think maybe you can see a little bit more out of Datome and Jurebko and, and maybe consider resigning them. But all those guys are free agents next season, so it doesn't really affect either of those teams who are not playoff teams. Ramon Sessions to the Wizards, Andre Miller to the Sacramento Kings. That I Ramon Sessions has been so bad this year, so unbelievably bad, that I gave Sacramento a B and gave Washington a C plus because wow. I I I love Andre Miller. He's a Utah alum, he's great. But frankly, I mean I shouldn't even say but. He's better than Ramon Sessions right now, even though he was playing third point guard minutes in Washington at the time. Like, Sessions was so bad. First, and I think that Miller can help out a little bit in terms of, like, the locker room and veteran type stuff in Sacramento where there's lots of talk that they have issues in the locker room. And then JaVale McGee, a uh, heavily protected first-round pick, and the best name in this entire segment, Chuchu Maduabum. To the Sixers. That was that was good. Good job there. I don't Thank think you. I'd be able to pronounce that name. But, and uh, the uh, draft rights to Senk Akiol to the Nuggets. Why I can't find this, what I actually gave a grade <laughs> in the piece, which I mean, maybe I, means that it's then not. Then I'll <laughs> go. I, I, I think it was actually pretty brilliant by the Sixers. They they have the, they weren't even close to the salary floor, so it's free money that they're spending on JaVale McGee. Mm-hmm. They have a decent prospect, even though, again, you worry about it. JaVale, what JaVale McGee does tutoring your young bigs in New Orleans, Noel, and Joel Embiid. Uh, but, you know, you got a first-round pick back, and you had to take on salary that you had to pay anyway. Uh, it's kind of a free look at them. And, you know, sure, maybe they wouldn't have paid it next season, but I, I think they're probably a salary floor next season anyway. Yeah, no, they are. They definitely are, and I found my section. I did. I gave them a flat A. I thought that was really good. Yeah. And for Denver, th- this does kind of actually go against what I was just saying about KG, about not judging based on past deals, but part of this judgment was the fact that they gave $11 million a season to JaVale McGee yeah. not too long, which, of course, wasn't the current front office. That was Masai right. Jiri's, like only mistake. As it, or, well, actually, maybe he made a couple, but, uh, yeah, I gave them a C-minus for Denver because they had to give up an actual asset. See, that's just the thing. Like, why guy. not just tell JaVale McGee to go home? Like, you're not yeah. using that money this offseason to do anything with it, right? Yeah, I thought that was a little bit... The, the approach wasn't quite what I would have done with it. Yeah, they should have just Steph Marbury'd him, Raja belled him, told him to go home, mm-hmm. and then, you know, kept, kept the first-round pick. Yep. All right. Well, that's all the 11 trades. I'm glad we were able to grade them all. Um, so we've got our favorite segment of the show next, LOL Lakers. Can we get the, the cue... The cue the LOL Lakers cue the music. LOL Laker theme music, song. Theme song. Thank you. There we go. Yakety sacks. 
<laughs> All right, so not that much in Lakerland this year, uh, or sorry, this week. But uh, they did beat the Boston Celtics, which led to maybe the most hilarious moment in oh Lakers celebration history. As Jordan Hill, Nick Young, Jeremy Lin worked, uh, I don't even and know Carlos what Boozer. happened post game. And then Carlos, Carlos Boozer. Boozer comes in and starts doing his open mouth yelly thing, like he's just grabbed and bored or achieved an and one. Um, Just the the sheer happiness on their faces was great, given their record thus far. Did you see the 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 Kobe interview? Yeah, the next best part was then Kobe Bryant does an interview later, watches this, and just the reaction on his face was so, so disappointed. The whole crowd was laughing, and he was just sitting there stoic, cold-faced the entire time, just like, I am going to kill these guys the next time I see them. (laughs) Like, that was so good. And he didn't even say a word about it. Kimmel tried to get him to say a couple things about it, and then they just moved on and just talked about something else. Uh, They talked about the Oscars, I think, like, right afterwards. It was super awesome. Kobe's brilliant. And then they also traded uh, the, well, no, sorry, they didn't trade, but Phoenix traded their pick to Philadelphia, that top five protected, which they may have hurt themselves on after beating the Celtics the other night. Yeah, uh, it, but it looks like they'll keep it. They're very year. likely to keep it, so it was so good for them. They'll probably lose it next year, and Philly will get like three top five picks next year, or top eight picks next year, which will be completely ridiculous. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, well, that's your LOL Acre segment. Like I said, not very much to talk about this week, but there's still at least something. Kobe Bryant being angry. Check it out if you haven't already. It's on the internet. Um, I'm always reminded that people actually listen to the show when I get tweets and texts from people listening about words or phrases I've said on the show that are drastically wrong. All right, well, we've been kind of orgasming about Rudy Gobert. Um, <laughs> and, and so I want... So Sorry. the question Hi. is... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. Everyone's looking at me funny. That was great. That yeah. Was really good. Uh, uh, there are some questions whether or not I uh, that's an FCC violation from Peter Novak. Hopefully not. If, if so, well, I'll be the one paying the fine. Um, <laughs> you know... I don't. I don't hate my use of that. I, we're all pretty excited about Rudy Gobert. Maybe I was a little bit too excited. He is also the love child of Doc Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. not good for you, Andy. Okay, yeah, you're right. Okay, maybe it's not good that people listen to the show. Uh, well, if if you are still listening, despite everything I've said, maybe at least I've entertained you. Stick around for the next segment. We've got John Hamm of Daily Thunder joining us. He's going to tell us about his opinions of the Ennis Cantor trade, as well as how well Ennis Cantor's been playing in his first three games with Oklahoma City. That's next. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. This is Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett on the other side. I'm the one who says the embarrassing things just for a future notice. If you're ever having difficulties keeping us apart, it's whoever makes a verbal gaffe that is Andy Larson. <laughs> okay, fair enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and have John Hamm on the show. John is a contributor to Daily Thunder, the ESPN True Hoop uh, affiliate for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He's going to be joining us to tell us about his thoughts on the Oklahoma City uh, Ennis Cantor deal, as well as Ennis Cantor's thoughts thus far, or uh, thoughts on Ennis Cantor's play thus far. John, are you there? I am here. How's it going, guys? Good. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I can't complain very much. The Thunder ran out uh, the Pacers out of the building tonight, so we're all good. So uh, we had you on the show last week, and uh, I, I mean, th- you are the first guest in our in our show's history to be on the show two weeks in a row, because not only have we talked about the possibility of a trade, now we have to talk about the trade um, in history, as it were. So what were your reactions to the trade and what, what the Thunder gave up in order to get um, the players that they did? 
Yeah, it, it was interesting because as the day wore on, I mean, everything was all about a Brooke Lopez trade. And, and everything seemed to be trending in that direction, and they're just waiting on the thunder. And, you know, actually what they were doing is, is they were looking at other options other than that Lopez trade. Um, and then 15 minutes before the trade deadline, boom, you know, here comes all these watch bombs about Reggie Jackson's off to Detroit and Ennis Cantor's coming to Oklahoma City. And suddenly it just it made a lot of sense for them to do what they did. Um, they actually, some people have characterized this as like a steal, and I don't think that's fair. Uh, Reggie Jackson is a very good player. He was not going to be that player in Oklahoma City anymore. That ship had sailed. Um, so he was, you know, he was, he had checked out. So to give him up, gave up a 2017 first round pick, which is a little dicey. Um, you know, if, if, if the core doesn't stay together, hopefully they will. Uh, Tibor Plyce is a guy that they have had their eyes on, you know, for a few years and has almost brought him over and hadn't quite worked out. And Grant Jarrett, even though he hasn't produced a whole lot at the NBA level in garbage time minutes, he was very highly rated coming out of high school. If you go back and find the ESPN, uh, uh, the, the top, you know, 100 college guys, you know, coming in a few years ago, he was up there, you know, with, with the likes of, you know, Marcus Smart and Steven Adams in that list. So they gave up, they gave up a pretty good amount of, of talent in order to bring in Ennis Gander, who's the big man that they've been lacking for so long. Do you think, though, that it was that it was worth the eventual amount they gave up? And assuming, well, do you assume? I guess I should ask that the Thunder made this sign or made this trade with the intent of signing Cantor or matching reasonable offers for him over the summer. Yeah, I do. Uh, so, and, and part of their plan is the salary cap is going to take a jump in 2016. Um, but a lot of teams may find themselves barely over the salary cap, significantly under the luxury tax, and not really able to realize that money. Um, and they may have several roster spots they need to fill. What the Thunder did with this deal is you know, they traded for not only Anis Cantor, but Kyle Singler, who will both be restricted free agents season then. Their intention is to re-sign them or match any reasonable offer. I, I, I think, you know, with, with Cantor, it could even be up to a max offer. I don't think that would scare them off. They'll pay the tax next season. It's going to be a significant tax bill. But then the salary cap is going to jump so much that they'll be out of tax waters. So they're, they're, they're buying now with money they know is coming in later. I'm going to tell you, Andy and I just gave each other scared face looks when you said Max Deal uh, next to Cantor's name. I I yeah. would be hoping that doesn't happen if I was on your end. Not that he couldn't potentially realize that value. I just think the potential for that is uh, really low. But anyway, we've had a few games now. But tonight was the third game since the trade, correct? Yes. Okay, so what have I only, like I said earlier in the show, only got a chance to watch the first one of those games and have been really busy since then. What What is, for somebody who watches all of them and with a, with a sharp eye, what have you thought of Cantor thus far, initial impressions, eye test-wise? His, his numbers have been pretty good. Numbers have been very good. The way that he is, has come right in and meshed. Uh, again, this is, this is a talent the Thunder have not had since they came to Oklahoma City. Uh, he is the first center in Oklahoma City Thunder history to post a 20 and 10 in a basketball game. Yeah, we know so, that you know, earlier. Yeah. <laughs> think of all the guys they've rotated through, and, and, and Cantor was the first to do it. He's, he's playing closer to the basket. Tonight, he actually hit a shot from the top of the key. That's probably about the furthest out he's actually drifted to shoot. 
Um, he's cutting to the basket. Russell Westbrook can get by his guys so easily, and, and he just has such gravity that he just attracts other players and opens things up. Cantor, tell me if, if I'm wrong about this. He seems to have very good hands. I'm hearing otherwise from his Utah stint. But. Um, Dribbling-wise, and into, I think I saw one of your tweets earlier about catching the ball. Yeah, He can catch passes that are as long as they're reasonably close to his his reach I think he's always been pretty good at that that was never something people complained about too much around here sometimes he would dribble himself a little bit into some trouble like he not that he's a bad Mm -hmm. not that he's even a bad dribbler just that sometimes he makes bad decisions with where he dribbles I think would be more of that I don't know yeah and and I would also say that double teams if double teams come teams would double team him not because he was an amazing post threat but because they felt he would turn it over when they did and and were often rewarded for yeah, I think so. he turned the ball over like over 20% of the time in the post per synergy or something like that, which is mm. a, a decently high percent. But with a team like Oklahoma City, especially when Duran is back in the fold, it's going to be da- if the, you know if they can even get him to get that first level pass out of the double teams, which they did struggle with here in Utah to get him to do that. But if they can, it's going to be really bad for opponents if he can get the ball out without turning it over there. Yeah, and, and again, he is, he is working the pick and roll game very well and and uh, even defensively, I, I think it's helped significantly that he's playing next to Serge Ibaka. Mm-hmm. And when Steven Adams comes back, he may actually get some minutes alongside Adams as well, which, which will help you know, mask a lot of his defensive, uh, defensive deficiencies. But uh, he's performing very well. And, and, and the max contract that I brought up, it, you're right, that does sound kind of frightening. However, again, we're, you start, start thinking in terms of 2016 money. If the salary cap is ninety million, is fifteen million for Cantor all that outrageous? Probably not. That's probably more like a you know twelve to thirteen million dollar contract in today's money. So yeah, that's true. That's 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 why I think some team out there with a bunch of cap room that's a little bit desperate could throw such an offer at him. But you know maybe the Thunder could beat them to the punch and get that down a little bit. Just quickly, do you think there's any uh, possibility of him getting uh, being the starter when Stephen Adams does return? That's kind of a, a debate we did not expect to have around here because Stephen Adams, you know, works his way to the starting lineup. Um, he's, he's pretty popular around here, and he's, he's very good defensively and kind of robotic offensively, but it's been working out fairly well. Now here comes this big man who can catch, catch passes in the low post. It's just like this foreign concept here. And you start to see all the possibilities that he brings to this team. So there's a little bit of a debate on which way they might go. Knowing Scott Brooks, who tends to stick with what works and don't rock the boat a whole lot, he's probably going to stick with Adams and go with Cantor in that second unit, but that certainly bears watching. That might tinker back and forth as the season moves on. That's a good point. So with the pick that uh, you guys gave to Denver and is now in Philadelphia's hands, I believe you gave it to Cleveland first, sorry, but uh, yeah, you get to keep it if you guys are in the top 18 of the draft. So if you're in the top 12 of the NBA, then it does get rewarded to Philadelphia. Right, what's your guys' feeling on, you know, are you looking to make up that two-game difference that would put you guys into the top 12 of the league? Or, I mean, what, what's the feeling on, on that amongst Thunder fans? Yeah, you know, the way they're playing right now, you know, there was a stretch where just getting into the playoffs, you know, it gave a lot of fans heartburn. Now that they're on this seven-game win streak after tonight, they're pretty pretty solidly in eighth place, and it's even not outrageous to think that they can move up to seven, possibly 
and this is a bit of a long shot, but possibly even overtake Portland in the in the Northwest Division. So I kind of think that they're not too concerned about you know where they place. Basically, they were just concerned that if there was another injury or two that would knock them for a loop, that it would put them into maybe you know maybe not quite the lottery, but in that fourteen to fifteen range, they'd want to retain the pick. So. Um, the, the feeling around here is that, yeah, that, that pick's going to get conveyed and they're okay with that. Yeah, I've, I have to feel like for this year, making the playoffs and getting a good seed probably means more than a pick that's going to be conveyed many years down the line. Definitely. Real, right. quick, real quick, you mentioned, we only got a couple minutes left, but you mentioned Grant Jarrett earlier. Do you think he's a guy that may have the potential to be a, a, a even a, a spot minutes rotation player in the NBA? I kind of think so. Now, he's, he's very raw. Uh, there's still some work to do. Uh, the Thunder were very patient with him. He spent all of last season in the D League. This was a prearranged deal, um, and then this season he was he was signed. He had ankle surgery and he was out for for a little while. He spent time between the the, the Thunder and the Oklahoma City Blue, um, and it, it was hard to get a good read on him because he only came in in garbage time and he put the ball up as soon as he got an opportunity. <laughs> but he's he's very. Um, he came with with, with a, a, the Thunder were very high on him. They went out and purchased a second round pick so they could get him. They were high on him, so to include him in this deal, I don't feel like he was just a throw in. So uh, yeah, I, I, there's a potential prospect on your hands that could contribute something down the road. I think. And and that's interesting because he will be on the in the NBA roster for the Jazz for the rest of the season, or at least I anticipate so. So we'll, I think the Jazz will get a chance to to take a look at him. All right, well, John, yeah. yeah, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us once again on the show. Uh, where can we find your work? So I contribute to both DailySunder.com as well as NewsOK.com, which is the website of the Oklahoman, which is the major newspaper here in uh, the state of Oklahoma. Perfect. All right, and, and follow you at John M. Ham, uh, correct? That's correct, J-O-N-M-H-A-M-M. Make it so complicated, you have to spell it out each time. <laughs> well, yeah, you can you can find me there. Well, it's a it's a worthwhile follow. So thanks anyway for joining us. All right, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you so much, John. Um, unfortunately, as John gets off the phone, I have to share some bad news with oh. everybody, and oh, that, that is that it has just been announced that Derrick Rose has a medial meniscus tear in his right knee and will need surgery. And this is the same injury wow. that he had last year, and he will be out again. This is unbelievable to me. I what? just How, when when was this hurt? This just broke, like right now. That that's why I was making weird f- hand signs at you. <laughs> we were getting done with John. There was because it, it just broke. I think Seku Smith is the one that broke it first, if I'm not mistaken. How? Um, or maybe it was Mark Stein. I'm not sure. It just happened. Oh man! How that, did that happen? I mean, I, I don't even know. They just uh, Mark Stein says from the Bulls, Derek Rose reported today with right knee pain. Uh, exam and subsequent MRI confirmed medial meniscus tear of the right knee. I think it's medial, actually. Excuse me, I shouldn't be saying uh, medial, whatever. That's oh man, that's horrible. Yeah, I I mean Derek Rose was so cool. Can we just? I mean, it, it may be that his his NBA career is legitimately over, right? Like he he's had the Brandon Roy. This full set of injuries that that he didn't really look like he was all the way back yet this season, I mean, and the, the, this the, can't help. The track record of guys coming back from one of these injuries to be even a shell of their former selves is very, very low. The track record yeah. of guys coming back from three is non-existent. This really sucks. I'm sorry, Derek. Like that, that really sucks. All right. Well, we're gonna take a moment of silence and a commercial break. Uh, 
and maybe cry a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, on the next side, on the other side of the segment, we'll be talking about the jazz getting better and, and jazz fandom in the area and, and maybe crying about Derek Rose a little bit more. You're listening to Salt City Hoops, ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. We just broke the news, in case you didn't hear it five minutes ago, that Derek Rose is uh, going to be undergoing surgery on that same knee. It's a right medial whatever segment. Meniscus. Um, meniscus. His knee exploded once more. That's his third knee injury. We're sad about it. But in the interest of not depressing ourselves too much, we're moving on. Yeah. To how good the Jazz have been, which is, I, I kind of wanted to point this out, and maybe it's a little bit of me bragging, um, but Salt City Hoops has had its best in-season month ever this year. And there's still uh, this days month. left And this yeah, month. it's February 24th. We've still got five days, and February is a short month. Like, sure, it's a trade deadline and all of that, but the interest in the Jazz has never been higher for Salt City Hoops, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Um, which is good for us, right? Like we're jazz analysts. We're we're gonna be getting a pay bump sometime soon, right? <laughs> yeah. That's that's what's important. Yeah. Um, no, but it is exciting. Like I don't know if you remember, kind of growing up, but just the excitement in the community about when the Jazz were in the NBA Finals. I mean, people painting their driveways with jazz with the jazz court on them, and you know the car window flags, and I mean just the sheer amount that this area got behind. A, a contending franchise is exciting. If the Jazz were able to get to that level again, which is is not anytime soon, but I, I just miss that time in my I, life. I, I truly don't know that it's not anytime soon. I really, I've maintained it, and I continue, especially given the recent moves, continue to maintain it. I think the Jazz are taking a run at the playoffs next year. They're 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 taking a run at the eight seed. And who knows where they go from there? That's going to depend then they on win. How, how guys develop. But. Then you just win sixteen games in a row in the playoffs, and then yeah, you, you got the title. Well, it's easy. It's it's just that easy, right? <laughs> I mean, I I really think that the the. Uh, and I know what you're talking about. That was right when I first moved to Utah. I was nine years old. Was the second finals year. Was okay. when they played Jordan and the Bulls. And I, I remember that. That's how I got into the Jazz in the first place because everybody talked about it. My friends in yeah. elementary school were talking about it when I was there. That we wanted to be. Jeff Hornacek became my favorite player because I liked I liked the sharpshooters. Like I was always into that. And I, I, I glommed on directly to that team despite having no Utah ties whatsoever. And that was it. Was really fun. It was it, cool. It was the bee's knees, as yeah. it were. And I, th- you know, I think that we're not far away from that period being right around yes. the corner again of maybe not I'm not saying they're going to make the finals in two years but that, that this is going to be an exciting team that there's going to be stuff to look forward to and there's going to potentially be playoff appearances and playoff games to look forward to and yeah I think I think it's really fun and really positive and full credit honestly to the organization for the way they've kind of turned things around in the last couple of years I think we've really started to see that at jazz games I yep. last night was fans were were boisterously angry at those aforementioned bad refs that was some of the loud booing I've heard in that arena yes. in a long time like there was then and deservedly so those refs were terrible but the <laughs> guys are yeah. awful sad part is we still have another 25 minutes to play <laughs> John's on his game today John's got the good got the good stuff coming on yeah the credit to our producer John LaFollette by the way I I give him not enough credit for doing the show so well yeah so I'm I'm really stoked about it we have a period coming up here in the next little while that I think is even going to maybe fan that fire a little more, even because I think the Jazz have got an eight-game period here where you could very easily see them winning five, six, maybe even seven if they got lucky. 
Yeah, I, I want to give a quick shout out to those listening who have who've, uh, chimed in on Twitter. Right. Uh, that Doolin kid again asked who is the bigger UDQM waiting to happen, Andy B. Larson or Yucca Man Hoops. Um, UDQM, in case you're not aware of the SLC Dunk acronym game. Yep. And I unintentional dirty quote machine and that it took me that like two months to find out what that actual, was actual actually yeah I, I i think i qualify uh and then clean peterson always listening i appreciate that and coach nick of basketball breakdown so that's that's cool that he's listening as yeah. well and clint says uh, so you're saying the jazz didn't miss by drafting costa kufis over Derek rose in 2008 uh well wait. i don't know that they had a choice yeah i don't think they did i think there was the <laughs> first pick but not the, and, and now deandre jordan the jazz could have had and they didn't. Yeah, and I I do wish Costa was still in town. That'd be that'd be fun, especially just because I like his name. The Jazz would be better. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we were talking about the schedule. So, yes. uh, the Jazz uh, they have played the hardest schedule in the league thus far, which I think has made we, we've talked about how the margin differential of their points is actually much better than last year, even though their record is not wildly different. And I think that's been part of what's mass at is that the Jazz have played so many good teams. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that coin is now they have the easiest schedule in the league for the rest of the year. And now's where you could see them pulling off a lot of wins in a row. I mean, Hollinger has them winning, I believe it's 14 or 15 more games than the rest of the season with only 29 left. You know, we're looking at an above 500 finish to the rest of the year mm-hmm. if, if things go well. Yeah. Uh, the big question, of course, is injuries, right? Like, because if, if any of Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, or Gordon Hayward goes down, this team is done. Just yeah, especially Hayward. Hayward, the team would be done offensively. Def- uh, uh, if Favors or Gobert, you know, all of a sudden... Trevor Booker's your starting power forward, and and you give some guy a D leaguer thirty minutes again. Yeah, it's it's you. Of course, of course we hope, of course we hope. Excuse me, that we're not you know we're not doing any jinxing or anything like that. But yeah, if one of those three, especially Gordon, was to even have some slight ankle thing or something for a little while, that would be majorly detrimental. Which of course wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because it's you know it's the, this year isn't the year that really matters next year is but at the same time I do think that the the culture going forward and again something that'll appear in a piece of mind tomorrow the culture is important and getting this getting winning into the this team's head and as having that be the regular thing I think means something and it maybe even a potentially highly meaningful something yeah this is something I was talking to David Locke about yesterday but you look at the correlation between teams' records from year to year, and it's actually interesting. The teams who did better at the end of the season, if you just look at the second half record, actually correlates better to next year's success than the full record, even though it's a it's a larger sample size. Which I think teams makes that sense do be- inherently. Yeah, it does. Teams that do better at the end of the season do better in their next year. Yeah. And if the Jazz can finish out the year by doing that, it'll be a huge success and set them up for a really great 2015-16, where maybe they're a winning team, maybe they're contending for that playoff spot, that, that they're hoping for, especially if they are able to get someone in the offseason. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to reel off the next games they have just real fast, yeah. one by one. They're, they got Los Angeles at home tomorrow night. The Lakers, win. they're at Denver on Friday. Win. Should be a win. They got Milwaukee at home on Saturday. That's a tough yeah, one. But, but we'll it's at home. It. Yeah, and I mean, they beat Portland great. and San Antonio, so what's yep. Milwaukee? John win. says win. Uh, we got at Memphis on Tuesday. That's a tough one. Probably yeah, that's a, a loss. loss. We got at Boston on Wednesday, so it is win. a back-to-back, okay, but maybe. I think they might win at Philly Friday. Got to win that one. At Brooklyn on Sunday. Win. Probably a win, and then the Knicks at home on the 10th. Win. That's like six. Yeah. You know, they're, they're six out of the next two. Yeah. The Jazz yeah. are only like nine seconds out of the play, or nine games out of the playoffs. Speaking of seconds, we've got about 10 of them. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, so much for tuning in. Yeah. Andy B. Larson over there. I'm here. Uh, you can read all of our stuff at saltcityhoops.com. Thanks so much for listening.